I'm beginning to think Yes, I'm beginning to think Thoughts become me Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner-Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world-class talent. Join her here each week on The Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real-life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? So I had a difficult experience about two weeks ago. I was at a city council meeting here in a city in Southern California. It is a wonderful city in which I've had the opportunity to do some work pretty consistently over the last 15 years. It's a working class city. It also happens to be almost all Latino, about 98% Latino. I was there to make an announcement about a program on which I'm working. It became clear pretty quickly that some folks were there to protest a potential decision that the council might be making that they are really angry about. There were about 25 or 30 people who were there on this issue. And as sometimes happens, their upset over this one issue got rolled in with their upset on, about race and economic injustice and some other issues. They were filming themselves and the council. Unfortunately, as things progressed, their outrage really morphed into bullying, trying to bully the council and then onto me as I sat in the audience. Because I am white and uh, was sitting in the front of the audience and in this all Latino community, they ended up taunting me and calling me names, mostly about the fact that I was, uh, am a white woman. Eventually it escalated and they turned their cameras on me so that they were filming me and then put a cartoon face of a pig over my face. That escalation was when my emotions became hard for me to manage. And as regular listeners know, or anybody who follows me, I am a person who has struggled with my weight my whole life. When, it, when, when I was the racial object of their hate and vitriol, it was easier. When the pig face happened, it, it felt like something turned and it became more personal and more hurtful. I'm telling you this story today because it is directly connected to our guest and because it's really about how easily we dismiss people by the container that they are housed in, in this case, the container in which I am housed, rather than 
the content of, of our hearts and minds and souls. Which brings me to my guest for today. Dr. Christine Heldman is a professor. She is an author. She's a political commentator and she's an activist. Her work really focuses on systems of power and social injustice in the United States. She researches race, gender, ability, body size, age, and sexuality in politics and in popular culture. Welcome to the show, Christine. So good to see you, Janine. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, I'm so thrilled to have you. So let's, let's get into this. I got to see you uh, present uh, maybe now two months ago, talking about women and power and gender and politics. So as you think about the world, what is something that you've become aware of that we're just not paying enough attention to, either consciously or unconsciously? And what's the cost mm -hmm. of that inattention? Well, I would say there, I, my response is twofold. The first is a really big issue, which none of us really are talking about in terms of public policy, and that's fat phobia. <laughs> and the underlying issue is that we evaluate primarily girls and women, but we evaluate everybody based upon their physical form in ways that are not meritorious. So I actually think that fat phobia is the next big social justice issue. It is one where when you look at rates of discrimination, every form of discrimination has actually declined. If you look at the Harvard implicit bias test in the past mm -hmm. decade, everything is declining uh, with the exception of LGBTQ plus, it's staying about the same, but we actually see bias against fat folks increasing tremendously. And I should take a step back and say that I'm using fat as a descriptive term. It is not derogatory in any way, shape, or form to me. And I want to live in a culture where that is just an aspect. It's a descriptive term. And the reason that I, I think this is such a pressing issue is because of the toll that it takes on fat folks who are, by the way, about 40%, 38% of the American population, according to the CDC. So we have two in five Americans who are facing employment discrimination, uh, dating discrimination, they're facing uh, loan discrimination. I mean, there are all of these different ways it plays out. So they're facing discrimination in professional settings. They're also experiencing uh, direct vitriol oftentimes, as you just shared, Janine, yeah. in public settings, but it happens all the time. And people, I think, um, straight-sized folks think think that they're they've got a moral superiority because we've associated that with body size. And I just want to briefly go through some myths. It is Please. a myth that you control your body size. Eighty percent of it is determined by genetics, and we all know ninety-five percent of diets fail. Ninety-five percent. How many y'all have tried to diet and then you gain the weight back plus some? Right? Yo-yo dieting it has profoundly negative effects for your health long term. You cannot right. tell somebody somebody's health based upon their size. We also know that if you have a slightly higher uh, BMI, not the extremes of being underweight or, or very, um, you know, very fat or very thin, but if you have a large, if, if you are considered uh, 30 to 35 BMI, which, you know, we can talk about how BMI is not a great measure. But <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're a little plump, you're going to live longer. So don't tell me that it's this straight correlation, right, between body size and health. And I think even beyond that, the, the fact that you can't tell somebody's health based upon their body size, 
beyond that, there's this kind of, as I mentioned, a morality tied up into it because right. the medical establishment makes people feel like, well, you know, I'm just worried about your health. Um, actually, how about just like everything else to do with my body? You don't get involved. It's not your concern. Um, and so I want to live in that world. I want to live in a world where, you know, 40% of Americans don't face discrimination, vitriol, um, and other things that have profoundly negative effects um, on a daily basis. And I think part of what's so challenging about talking about any of the things that are related are related to the container, you know, whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about, you know, a, a man who is in a slight body, whether we're talking about a man or a woman who's in a bigger body. And I know from talking with men in larger bodies, it's easier to be a man in a larger body than it is to be a woman in a larger body because of all of the stuff that you so brilliantly talk about in your book, The Sexy Lie, which we'll get into in a minute. Women's bodies are so connected to our senses of self and in a way that a man's body is just not. And, and so when we, when we focus on the container rather than on the human, so much mischief gets created. And so, you know, in the work that you are doing in the work that I am doing focused on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, the, the mischief that gets created when we focus on, on the container rather than the content of somebody's soul is so detrimental to strong working relationships, strong romantic relationships, healthy personal relationships with ourselves. I mean, regardless of, of, of what anybody else says, so many of these messages end up getting internalized about who I'm supposed to be, who you're supposed to be, who men are supposed to be. What, what do we do about, I mean, I, I realize this is a huge question, but <laughs> what do we, if, when we realize I am, so I drove my car, I, I say to folks all the time, I live my life in service of, of uh, my podcast, of uh, getting to write, of helping to support my clients. So I drove my car, uh, which is a very cute little car, up to a um, strip mall. And where I parked was right in front of a frozen yogurt place. And I had the lights on because it was like dusk. And this young, cute couple was in the window and the lights now from my car are shining in on them. They looked out at me and they started laughing, the two of them. And we're having whatever conversation they're having. I, of course, have absolutely no idea whether their laughter had anything to do with me. I made up a whole story in my head that they were laughing because I am in a larger body and parking in front of a frozen yogurt store. What business does this fat person have parking in front of, of this store? And, and I felt mortified and, and I made all of that happen. They didn't come out and say anything to me. This was a whole thing happening in my brain. And so 
when we realize that we are at the effect of these, these systems in which we live that are so much about what the container is supposed to look like, how do we start to break that down for ourselves internally? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. And of course, it's an individual response to a structural problem, right? right. And that that's why it's so difficult. And you're, you have every reason to believe that they're laughing at you because of your body size, because, and I'm not going to speak for you, but I can say looking at survey data and, and having a lot of um, friends who have told me stories and, and colleagues who've told me stories about what they face, you know, people of size are constantly facing remarks, discrimination. Sometimes the snickers are loud. Sometimes, you know, you're on an airplane and it's okay to, to be nasty to folks of size, even though we're all cramped in. And I mean, I think that's the perfect example, right, of how we're all in this together. Everybody is scrunched on a plane, but you're going to get mad at someone of size because they're sitting, they happen to be seated next to you. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there's just all sorts of nasty vitriol that is thrown at folks of size constantly. And, and yes, you're right. We could be talking about race. We could be talking about ageism. We could talk, be right. talking about um, somebody's apparent sexuality. Uh, you know, we could talk, be talking about whether or not somebody has an obvious disability, right? Mm -hmm. There are all of these, these different kind of systems of power that we're talking about. But you're right that women and girls uh, are much more evaluated based upon our bodies. So if you look at the, at the the structures that cause this to be such an issue for women. Um, we have men who are mostly evaluated based upon prestige and based upon um, income. With that said, they're also supposed to kind of embody masculinity. So short men face a lot of this similar discrimination to women who don't fit some hegemonic, you know, culturally acceptable idea about what you should look like which of course shifts over time, but it's always, it's always unachievable. Um, but for girls and women, we are taught from a very wee age that our primary value are, are our bodies. And it doesn't matter what else you achieve, you can instantly be reduced to nothing by somebody talking about your body. And that's what happened at this, at this public event you attended, right? It doesn't matter what your accomplishments are or what you've done or what you have to bring to the table in the conversation, you're immediately dismissed based upon your body size as a woman, right? And so we see, we, we raise our little boys, uh, as Sarah Mernon puts it, to, to view their bodies as these tools to master their environment. And we raise little girls to view their bodies as projects to constantly be worked on. And this isn't happenstance, it's systems, it's patriarchy where we value men and what they do more than women and what they do, plus capitalism. So you have a $60 billion a year diet, fitness and beauty industry that has a, a great stake in making sure primarily women, they would love to bring men into this, but it hasn't worked. <laughs> making sure that women aren't satisfied. And how do you do that? You present impossibly airbrushed, uh, incredibly thin, unachievable standards of beauty. So the further the distance between where someone thinks they are and where they think they need to be, the more products they will buy. And so in my book, The Sexy Lie, The War on Women's Bodies and How to Fight Back, I, I talk a lot about how, and we were talking about this earlier before we got on air, which is this idea that women are suffering in silence about 
constantly viewing their bodies as projects. They're never good enough. Body hatred mm -hmm. and shame. We know the, that the more likely you think of yourself as a sex object, which means that you're you're seeking attention from the outside world and you view your status based upon what how desirable you are as a sex object, mostly to the heterosexual male gaze. But it's kind of a general thing where we're constantly worried about you know our appearance. In fact, researchers out of the University of Michigan find it's enough to the, the amount of time we spend on what's called habitual body monitoring and thinking about our bodies over the course of our lifetime, we could earn three PhDs. So I need you to say that again. Holy cow. So the amount of time that we spend worrying about our bodies, we could earn three PhDs instead. That's right, Janine. So imagine what we could do if we weren't raised in a culture that said you have to constantly think about your body. And I should point out that it's always shocking to men I speak with, mostly my students, yeah. when I tell them, yeah, women are constantly thinking like, oh, well, if I sit this way, this angle is going to be, you know, I, I'll look thinner, I'll look better, I'll look whatever. Yep. We do that a thousand times a day when we're out in public. And maybe a thousand is overstating the case, but it might not be. We are constantly like pitching ourselves to to men at stoplights who will never see it. Like it's, <laughs> it's the most ridiculous like transfer of power, constant transfer of power. And the sexy lie is uh, the title of the book, right? The, the lie is that being a sex object is empowering. It's right. not empowering. It, you know, it's in the, we, we simplify our thinking in the world in terms of this particular binary is the, the subject object, right? So when we're talking about sex objects, we're talking about the subject object binary, sexual subjects act and sexual objects are acted upon. So by definition, even if you're the most valuable sex object for that you know, <laughs> 235 on a Tuesday, that one day you finally <laughs> achieve it, you're still in a subordinate position to everyone you are performing for, right? You're performing your sexuality for. And important to bring up the distinction between being sexual, which is about your own sexual pleasure, and being sexy, which is about performing sexual pleasure uh, for others, right? And so really at the heart of this is is sexual objectification the process mm -hmm. of turning a human being into an object who exists for your sexual desires and we know you know your initial question about what are the ramifications of the cost of that uh, we now know from almost three decades of research that the more you think of yourself as a sex object and internalize this idea of self-objectification as researchers call it which i don't love because it makes it seem like <laughs> it's an individual issue when it's a structural right. issue but we know we have higher rates of depression body hatred and shame, lower rates of political efficacy, which is a belief that your voice matters, uh, heightened uh, eating disorders. We have, we're less likely to be engaged in politics and in social systems that change the world. So it, it has, it also lowers your GPA. I mean, it's all of these, all of these things coming up. And that's what you're talking about when you talk about the cost of internalizing this societal system. Right. And I, I go through a lot of ways that, that we can, push back against it. But unfortunately, I think anytime you're dealing with a cultural system, it's really difficult to truly transcend it. And so that's part of why my question was was more focused on the like, what do what do I do? Because the what do we do question, like that's a that's a big systemic question. And and you do pose some answers to it and and ways in which we can respond in your book, The Sexy Lie. And so when I when I 
think about some of the um, objectification that we internalize. Like it's it's hard, and and because ultimately, as you so rightly put it, it's it's sexual objectification, but it's based on our sex and based on our gender and based on wanting to be appealing to men in particular. But because it begins so early, like this begins when we're like three, four, like when we're little, little kids. And obviously at that point, there is nothing in our brains and hopefully in the brains of anybody with whom we're coming in, in contact that has to do actually with sex. And so the acts of sex. And so, so much of it is about how we value little girls. I, in this conversation that I mentioned before we went on air, I was, before you and I started talking today, I was in a two hour planning session with a relatively young CEO who is uh, about to be the father to his second daughter. He has a son and a daughter and in August, his new daughter is coming. And as I was thinking about that, having been reading your book and refreshing myself on your book over the last few days, I was thinking about the fact that my friend Mark, the CEO, is, is going to be welcoming this new little girl. And, and that how common it is that we say to little girls things like, oh, you're so pretty, like that makes them good. We, we almost never say to little boys, oh, you're so handsome in a way that is equating their, their physicality to being their, their beauty, to being good. And, and we do that with young girls and, and then we just continue doing that. And and one of the things I was really struck by when I got to see your presentation that you did a couple of months ago was how this rolls over into places that we might not really think about it, like politics. And, you know, so regardless of the, the where you fall on the political spectrum, if we think about Sarah Palin and if we think about Michelle Obama or Hillary Clinton, the way that they were both all three treated was largely based on physicality. So can you talk about that a little bit and how this all connects back? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it really gets into the, the brain psychology and cog science in terms of how we view sex objects. And I, you bring up a really interesting point, you know, the most damaging words you can tell a little girl are you're so pretty, the most damaging words you can tell a little boy or be a man. We go into this, you know, at the representation project in our film, Misrepresentation, and our other film, The Mask You Live In, we really focus on how damaging those messages end up being. And they're so damaging that, and, and obviously damaging, that when men become sex objects, they often reject it. So Rob Lowe goes through rejection, Brad Pitt, they don't like being just reduced to a sex object. And yet that is what 
every woman in Hollywood is supposed to be striving for, right? But they feel it. They feel it's not, it, it's a much bigger issue at stake here, which is that when you turn a half of your population, when, when the norms of their behavior and the way they're evaluated are objectifying and you sexually objectify them, when you, you, when you turn them from humans, humans into an object, that's the first step in violence toward that group. So it is not surprising that one in three women will experience domestic sexual violence, stalking, over the course of her lifetime. Um, so it's not just, so it, it affects us in lots of different realms. And you're asking specifically about politics. You know, politics, we know from brain psychology that when you see a sex object, everyone, men and women, gender non-conforming folks, view her sexually objectified woman as a collection of body parts instead of a whole person. So mm -hmm. we dehumanize in that, in that way. Other studies have found that for men, heterosexual men, who view a sexually objectifying image of a woman, the part in their brain that activates when they're going to use a tool, that's the same part in their brain that activates when they see a woman who, a sex object. Uh, but perhaps most troubling is that we, uh, Heflick and Goldenberg have done a number of studies and uh, Celinda Lake and others, and uh, oh, there's a bear out my window. Um, and I'm not even- <laughs> uh, All right. Uh, You've got kittens in the back and a bear out the window. <laughs> I live in bear country. I'm like, the kids are inside. We're all good. Yep. It's a teenage bear, like a 250 pounder, no biggie. Um, so what we find is that when we sexually objectify women, we care less about their pain and suffering. And specifically, Hefflick and Goldenberg look at women political candidates. So what happens is um, does, across party lines, if and especially amongst Republicans, there was a big gap. If you saw Sarah Palin as a sex object, um, then you were less likely to support the the uh, Palin uh, McCain ticket, McCain Palin ticket. So it had a, it actually had an electoral outcome, less supportive. And and Celinda Lake, who's a Democratic pollster, went in and tried to figure out what was going on with some future, some uh, later elections, and she found that the moment at which a woman candidate is presented as a sex object, her levels uh, of competence are perceived as lower. So she is perceived as less competent if she's a sex object. Now we see this in workplace settings as well. So a couple of studies have been done, one in particular that stands out that you, uh, your competence levels diminish if you are seen as a sex object in the workplace. But specifically, if you are in a secretarial or supportive position at a, a low rung in your corporation, your business, it actually doesn't affect your competency. It's as you move into positions of leadership. Now, am I trying to, you know, slut shame women? Absolutely not. But it's really important to know this is how the world works when you're going out and making decisions about how, how you're dressing and how you want to be perceived. I don't make the rules but boy, I'm really here to help kind of figure out what they are. And so especially women in leadership positions, their perceived competence is diminished if they are sexually objectified. So what does that tell you that we raise an entire generation, you know, generation after generation of girls and women to believe that their body is their most valuable asset and that they should seek sexual objectification. And that's the height of our existence. And yet it harms us in social, political and economic ways. And and so part of what's so tricky about this is if we think about somebody like Michelle Obama, who's a relatively speaking, when, when, when Barack Obama was elected into office, one of the younger first ladies. And then we think about somebody like Hillary Clinton obviously a more significantly more mature woman. 
And yet they both were victims of the same kinds of sexualization that, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton is running around in flat shoes and pantsuits. There's nothing intrinsically that she's doing having her be quote unquote sexy. And yet she is being objectified and people are judging her based on her pantsuits, based on her hair, based on her cleavage, based on her face or if she, her neck or, you know, all of, all of the things on that we judge women on. And so uh, you know, I'm back. I'm back to what do we do, Caroline? Yeah. How do we? How do we begin mm. to? I mean, it is part of it that we say, okay, I'm just, I'm gonna reject that when when someone is doing something that is objectifying a woman, I'm gonna call it out. Like, what are the things that we can start to do? as individuals, as business owners, as, as consumers. Yeah. And Janine, just quickly before answering that, you brought up Michelle Obama and it makes me think about misogynoir, right? Which is racism and sexism put together. And it's this, this really fascinating uh, point, which is that she wasn't just sexually objectified or desexualized or how sexuality was used. Her sex, sex appeal was used as a, as a basis to determine her value. She was also, you know, animalized because she's a black right. woman, right? So it's sexual objectic, objectification plus. Uh, she was masculinized. Uh, so it really speaks to, it's not just this impossible standard, right? It's a thin, white, blonde standard of beauty in the United right. States. And so it's this very narrow, rigid European standard. So what can we do? Uh, plenty, you know, I, I, I think thinking about it at the individual level, and this gets back to your earlier question, which I wasn't trying to evade, but I definitely <laughs> answer it, um, which is understanding the sexy lie, that it's a lie. Um, it is a structure. It, it is a system where even if you achieve the maximum amount of value, you're still going to be second to sexual subjects or men. I mean, men are are, you know, we all see about 5,000 images if we're moving through the world and advertising and media content um, per day. And uh, many of those are sexually objectifying for women. And this up with this idea that sex sells, except that most women are heterosexual. So if sex was really selling and we have sex drives that look very similar to men's. Why aren't we seeing, you know, photos, images of, of half naked men everywhere? There's a very specific reason because it doesn't work the same way. It's not about sex selling. It's really about power, right? So women are looking at sexually objectifying images and we're thinking, oh, that's how to be the ideal sex object. And men are looking at those images and they are saying, oh, I'm a sexual subject. It's a constant reminder of women's object and secondary status in our culture. And what's fascinating about that is that gay men sexually objectify women at similar rates to heterosexual men, which really for me speaks to the fact that it is about power. It is not actually about sex selling. Again, mm -hmm. if it were, capitalists would be selling it to women, just not what's happening. So what can we do? We can, we can recognize it as the big lie, not the big election lie. This is the big, you know, the big, this affects my life lie. Um, and I think if you look at the empirical evidence and the theoretical evidence, it's pretty clear it's a lie. It's also a system that uh, by definition will exclude most women of color. It's a system that promotes colorism even within communities of color. It's a system that every woman is going to age out of. She is 
going to become not effable. And I don't know if you've seen that comedy sketch, My Last Effable Day, with all of these, you know, women from Hollywood. Uh, but all, even if you achieve that maximum status, you're not going to hold it forever. And right. it, it's women against each other intergenerationally. It creates uh, female competition, even not even across generations, although that's a big thing too, and mothers and daughters. And it is su such a destructive force in the lives of girls and women. And it our dehumanization sets us up for violence. Um, so what do we do? We recognize that it's a lie. We recognize that we maybe can't transcend the system. And in fact, if we don't you know, play the game to a certain extent, it's going to harm us too. And I bring this up because you know, wearing too much makeup and being like too is harms you in workplace settings. Wearing none at all because of, of our standards of beauty also harms you. So looking at it, navigating that, media literacy, being able to recognize how these images are affecting us. Because we know that that from one experiment that you read a women, women's magazine, I mean, it's an anti-women's magazine as far as I'm concerned, if it has that label, but you read the magazine and within three minutes, your self-esteem is plummeting as you're looking at these images of unrealistic beauty standards and airbrushed and, you know, hegemonic white blonde bodies. And so recognizing it, media literacy, and then I talk about building armor. I use a lot of war metaphors because why not? But really like building your armor. So you go out every day using, uh, I have a sexy lie, seven day cleanse. So you can really like reset and say, okay, this is what these images are doing to me. Or these, this is, this is what these patterns of behavior, this is how they're affecting me. Journaling about habitual body monitoring. So what comes into your head, immediately putting it into your phone so that you can track it over the course of the day. You can find out how many things and how often and the sorts of things and how often you are saying things to yourself that you would never allow anyone else to say to you. So looking at that and of course, you know, the learning to as as those tapes and the, the, the nasty talk comes into your head, you just let it go, similar to, you know, meditation. Uh, so there's a lot you can do. You can also strategically make choices about your appearance and knowing that you're going to make being making those choices because they're going to benefit you in this particular setting. But by and large, you can kind of release this pressure. Once you recognize a sexy lie, it's really hard to actively and enthusiastically participate in it. But in terms of women who are sexually objectifying themselves, big hugs, no, comp no, am I critical of the system? Don't tell me it's empowering. You yeah. can do whatever the heck you want to do, but am I going to go after someone, you know, the, the 0.00003% of people who might be benefiting economically from it, even though it's costing them probably at a human level tremendously, I'm absolutely not going to be critiquing them. I might point it out, but in a, in a very loving way that recognizes that they are products of a broken system as well. Right. Oh, I love that. I'm going to end there. I, I think that was, that was a wonderful way to, to bring that together. <sighs> Caroline, thank you so much for your deep understanding of all of this, for your compassion, for your energy and verve around the vision that we can live in a world that is different from the one that we do now and all of the great work that you are doing to move us forward in that direction. And thanks for being oh. with us today. Thank you so much, Janine. What a joy, what a pleasure. And right back at you, right? It's these sorts of conversations. I mean, we think, oh, social justice is these big sweeping changes. It's actually just the everyday, it's this. Yeah. I am Benin Hamner-Holman, and this has been The Cost 
of not paying attention. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Until next time. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been the cost of not paying attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams.